I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 48, Jesse's Wish. So I think this is the shortest title that we've mm. had so far. Mm-hmm. Huh. Just two words. Huh. Jesse's yeah, Wish. Call. Pretty interesting, right? <laughs> fascinating. 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 Okay, also fascinating will be our one sentence summaries. <laughs> Equally as fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Um, Wait, I'm going to. Sorry, I'm trying to think about if I could reduce mine to fewer words. Go, carry on. Oh, okay. Should we just all try two two words? Oh my god, uh, I did not prepare that. Okay, I'll try. I got. I got one. Okay. Well, you go first, Emily. Okay, mine is cancer bad. <laughs> okay, I'll follow that with more childcare. <laughs> okay, but that that's a summary of literally any babysitter's club book. Cancer bad is not. <laughs> no, I know. That's what I'm saying. Yours is much better than Anne's, Emily. I'm gonna give. But I'm piggybacking today. on <laughs> Emily's. Well, no, but then then you're using four words and not two. Okay, you really want me to? Okay, I'll do two. I had a different one, but I'll do another one. Life unfair. Oh yeah, very good. I mean, <laughs> those six words together. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the plot. Yeah. yeah right? A little bit. A very small bit. Okay, you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. Nope. <laughs> and I'm an Anna Chikawa, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. And if you want to learn more about us and how we know each other, check out our prologue episode. Also, rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. And if you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC-related, drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. Oh, looks like we have some new patrons. Woohoo! Okay, I'm going to try to pronounce their names correctly. If I don't, you can write me hate mail at stuckinstonybrook at (laughs) gmail.com. So, patrons, Prem Devokula and Kate Easty, a pizza toast to you both. Pizza toast to you. Thank you. Uh, We also have some listener letters today. Yay, mailbox. Mailbox. Do we have a tune for that? (laughs) No, we need to make one. Mailbox. I just think about, I just had the Blues Clues song stick in my head. Oh, I have like, there there was that toy that (laughs) Keely and June had when they were little that when you put the little plastic letters in it said, let's mail some letters. That's what what I think of. I don't remember that toy. Okay. I'm going to read a letter from Julia Rayner, which has been edited for time. Hey, Anne, Esme, and Emily. I've had such a delightful time binge listening to your entire back catalog of episodes. It was only recently that I realized how much of an influence the Babysitter's Club had on my preteen years. The books were decidedly before my time, but as the majority of my book collection came from secondhand stores, 15-plus-year-old books were my jam. I was reading the BSC in the mid-aughts in Australia and used them to jump to wild conclusion about the lives of Americans. Yeah, appropriate. 
As an eight-year-old, I couldn't see what made my Japanese family member's eyes almond-shaped and my own white person's eyes not almond-shaped, for example, so decided that Americans had a biological difference making their eyes bugged out and round at all times, obviously. That's incredible. This This is such a good conclusion. I've worked with kids my whole teen and adult life. Did I love the BSC because I love kids or do I love kids because of the BSC? We'll never know. On a previous episode, you discussed Karen being a bit bratty and what's going on there. And as an educator reading these books to a seven-year-old, I have some thoughts. Karen is the absolute epitome of what kids wish they could do, but know they shouldn't. My kids especially live vicariously through Karen, watching her make wild choices and seeing what the consequences played out in full. They are an excellent teaching tool and so fun to read, although the behavior management is certainly questionable. She either gets no consequences at all or significantly out of proportion ones. She often keeps her antics a secret from her parents with Chrissy's help. Golly, we recently read Karen's Big Job in which she goes to work with Watson. I have some unfortunate news. Watson works for an insurance company. No. No, Julia. Perhaps he sells the people insurance for their Sunbeam collections. Yes, that's I'll accept that. Yeah, Sunbeam insurance. In this book, Elizabeth also also gives Karen coffee like it's no big deal. So perhaps that explains her (laughs) behavioral issues. Oh, my God. This is incredible. Genius. Thank you so much for your podcast. As a big feminist nerd, you talk about all the things I love. Please enjoy this brown rice casserole recipe as a token of my gratitude. Amazing. Much love, Julia. P.S. This recipe is actually delicious. That's incredible. I don't know that I've ever found an actually delicious brown rice casserole. So we will have to check this out. We'll have to check it out and see. I don't know, Anne. What do you think being surrounded by Americans? Do you think we all have really round bug eyes? Yes. I mean, I'm looking at you and Emily right now. And it's just, I just see eyes. Nothing else. (laughs) Like eyes on a stick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. I don't like, I just had a totally different image come to mind. <laughs> Singular oh, eyeballs. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was Shall awesome. I read another? <laughs> yeah, read another one. Okay. This one has a subject line letter from a husband. Ooh. Hello, Emily, Ann, and Esme. My wife is a BSC superfan. She spent a good part of the pandemic completing her already large collection of BSC books. As a result, I found myself unexpectedly becoming very familiar with the members of the club, their personalities, likes, dislikes, and friendships. Never did I expect to become so well-versed in the dynamics of the BSC members, the adventures within the Stony Brook loop, and the lessons learned along the way. We love your podcast, which is a delightful and insightful window into the strength of these stories, their place in our cultural arc and the advice they provide as young girls grow into young women. Oh, I got to pause there for a second. I feel like that might be giving us a little too much credit. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> that's really nice. That's mm-hmm. that's that's really nice, Philip. But I don't I don't know if we if we've done all of that. I don't know. I'm gonna take it. Okay. <laughs> I accept. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like Anne talks a lot about candy and duty, but like, what are you trying to say? <laughs> These are things that people need to know as they grow into young women. Fair fair enough. Okay. (laughs) To my knowledge, there is no parallel for young boys growing up. No series of books that presents a group of young boys with different ambitions, families, creative visions, or degrees of inherent leadership. P.S. For the record, I'm a total Claudia. Awesome. It would benefit us greatly as we develop to have this guide to social behavior through stories about kids we can relate to. The ones we get are riddled with toxic assumptions about what we're supposed to be. The BSC enables young women to gauge themselves against their peers find connections and differences that help them define what they become to view as themselves. Perhaps there is a series out there that I missed, but given the depth you explore with the BSC, I thought it'd be interesting to look at how the BSC specifically supports positive dialogue, except for the baby parade, I guess, and thoughtful (laughs) reflection for young women and why such a series might be unavailable to young men. 
Thank you for your ventures into the BSC series from an adult perspective. They help to secure their place as an important cultural touchstone and remind us of the power of storytelling to guide us as we attempt to understand our world. All best, Philip and Laura. P.S. Who is a total Marianne. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> Man. This is such a great letter. And it's a really honored. interesting question. I mean, yeah. I think it's more um, it's more thoughtful than our actual podcast. Yeah, I know. Philip just sat down and banged this out, and it's like way way better than we could do. <laughs> um, I I what do you guys think about that? I've been spending a lot of time since we got his letter thinking about this question, and I can't really think of even any books with groups of boys. There's not that many in like the Hardy Boys, even if you go far back. Um, and like Lord the of the Flies. Yeah, <laughs> a classic Does tale of, young, of friendship among young men. Yeah, and, and identity development. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I mean, I I think this question of like why that is not something we see is really compelling and very mm-hmm. interesting. You know, likely the toxicity dimension that he cites earlier is probably part mm-hmm. of that, right? That there's this like, you know, we've talked about like relationality as kind of a way that you know feminist thinkers have understood the development of kind of women's sense of self in part because of their social position, right. As like always being Mm -hmm. responsible for, for care work. But the presumption is that boys, you know, develop into like individuals who are detached from others. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the like the masculine and the feminine imperative. Right. Right. They go adventure and solve problems and accomplish things. Yeah. So in that regard, it's not surprising in that way, like the BSC, that's one reading of the BSC that actually makes it a little more traditional in that sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not it that that's bad, but those things, but mm-hmm. yeah, but those are some of the good things about our ideas of the feminine. Right. Well, like, right. Not, and like, there's no yeah. reason why boys can't develop relationally either and develop. Absolutely. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. different skills and tactics for caring for others and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's yeah. also, yeah. I feel like girls growing up, we read like little house on the prairie and, those types of books and mm-hmm. i mean traditionally boys write comic books right yeah or they read like adventure stories right yeah they read like narnia and like later i mean a lot of boys read harry potter i you know you can i mean mm-hmm. but harry and ron and uh it's the tall kid who's scared and then later does well neville Yes. I was like, it's not Nigel. I mean, but, but that's all, but whenever they have to figure something out relationally, Hermione has to help them. Mm-hmm. Like they can't figure stuff out on their own. It's like Hermione and Luna come in and, and solve the relational problems. Teach them how them. to like have right. feelings and yeah. 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 That's well, a good point. I t- yeah. It's really interesting. I, I, and I think in a lot of stories that are a little more relational about boys, like I'm thinking of like King Dork by, uh, Dr. Frank from the Mr. T experience. I love that book, but like it's about his journey with a girl more like girls come in to teach the relational lessons in a lot of those books. Well, I posed this question to my father-in-law, Sandy Schaller, who's a retired elementary school principal and a really avid consumer of children's literature. So he's read way more children's literature than the three of us put together. And he simply said, Philip's correct. Um, (laughs) One thing I hated when I was a young boy, he was born in 1947, was the dearth of books about realistic boys. Wasn't till I was nine or 10 and stuck with the flu that I was given a book filled with boys that had different talents and actually respected each other. Um, His parents had gone to a Broadway show and his grandmother stayed with him. And so they felt bad. And they went to the one bookstore in Times Square and came home with a present that is still one of his favorite books, Little Men by Louisa May Alcott. Um, So I never read that. 
Yeah, I didn't either because it was about boys. Devoured Little Women. I read that so many times. Yeah. So we should probably. Did you guys watch the Greta Gerwig movie? Yeah, I watched it with you. Oh yeah, I loved it. Well, I saw it. I saw it like four times in theaters. Okay, (laughs) I watched it so many times. It was really good. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think is there a series? Not that we can think of at all. But he did say nowadays any good book that has a boy in it is much more subtle in creating males that aren't as stereotypic. And I think, you know, we and Philip might say toxic as like the Hardy Boys. So, you know, hey, uh, kid authors out there, why don't you write a series about a group of boys with different personalities? Seems like some people might like it. What if they're also, hear me out, babysitters? (laughs) That would be amazing. Mm -hmm. It's time for a reboot. We got a female Ghostbusters. Why not Mm -hmm. a boy babysitter? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that would be awesome. Is there not? I wonder if there's boy babysitters fanfic out there. Oh, I bet there is. Yeah. Listeners, send it along to us if you know of it. All right. We we were going to talk about Jesse's Wish. <laughs> oh, yeah. Jesse's Wish. The book. Sorry, what? So, the book. Another two-sentence summary. The book. So the summary of this book is I would like to – I really want to talk about this plot point to you because the, the whole premise of this book is Jesse's sister, Becca, is in this, is in this kids' club Mm-hmm. thing it's is that what it's called just kids club that's what they shorten it to but it's the kids can do anything club kids can do anything club and it's kind of like a, a volunteer club where they mm-hmm. do like community local community work like clean up the parks mm-hmm. and stuff so one of the adult leaders has to leave because it's mrs simon because mr simon is going on a quote unquote long trip <laughs> and she decided to go with him so she's going to be gone for a while like what? I I honestly spent the entire week thinking of what this was. Like, what, is he having a midlife crisis? And he's like, <laughs> I I'm going on some backpacking trip across Southeast Asia. Are you coming with me or not? And she's just like, okay, I'm coming with you. For and I try to figure, I try to calculate how long she seems like about six weeks. Six yeah, six to eight weeks, right? Yeah, like what? Yeah, well, and I was it's unclear, right? If Ms. Simon currently works so so what i came to is that miss simon is like a retiree volunteer and Mm. she's not like a teacher at the school because obviously a teacher is not going to take off for six weeks in the middle of the year right and so maybe her husband's like we're retired i want to travel why are you with that kids club all the time Mm -hmm. and and then she's like okay so she goes with her husband and then becky's really upset because this means the kids club is over (laughs) so of course it's It's done yeah (laughs) So Jesse has her great idea of to step in for Miss Simon. And that kind of she brings up at the yeah, babysitters could- club meeting and everyone's like, oh wow, like this is a great idea. What if for the next month we all just do volunteer work instead of babysit? But then they decide to do both. And I'm like, where do you do your homework? I don't know. Well, they don't babysit much. There's not really babysitting chapters in this book. There's like no, other but- people's volunteer work chapters. Yeah, but they do agree to like. They're like, well, like I'm only volunteering on Tuesdays and Thursdays and you're volunteering. Right. So like they they answer calls for the club still. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And also like all these organizations are like, oh, cool. You're just going to come for one month. Thanks. Right. <laughs> but sorry, I, I missed the main point is that uh, Danielle has leukemia, who is one of Becca's friends in mm-hmm. Kids Club and um, that kind of. It goes through 
the wish is Danielle's wish and also Jesse's wish of, mm-hmm. you know, Danielle getting better and her, she like, what's the, it's called your wish is my command mm-hmm. is the, Which is the fictional make a wish. So Jesse kind of makes Danielle's wish happen of going to Walt Disney world. Of course. I was waiting for Emily's Mickey Mouse. Oh yeah. Where'd they go? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's all I can do. I could do the laugh and I could say, hi, guys. I can't say Walt Disney World. Come visit me in Florida. (laughs) No, I'm not doing that. Danielle, come visit me in Florida. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Thanks. So each babysitter kind of picks their own place of volunteer. Right. And then meanwhile, Jesse, we spend most of the time with the kids club and Jesse getting to know Danielle and seeing the ways the different kids react to her when she comes back. She's been in the hospital for a long time. She's lost all her hair from chemotherapy. She's really skinny. And her classmates, the fourth graders, are kind of cautious around her and don't really know how to react to her. And then the third graders who didn't know her before are much more kind of welcoming and open because I think they don't have the shock of seeing how different she looks from the previous year before she got cancer. And so there's some pretty nuanced portrayals of the different kids' different reactions to her. Like, by and I've said this before about a couple of the books, but this feels like a Mr. Rogers book to me. Um, we have a few of these in the series where Anna Martin is saying, let me teach you about this particular thing, the same way that Mr. Rogers, like, gives you a tour of the post office and explains what, what postal workers do. This is like, let me tell you what it's like to have an illness as a child. And that it's centered on cancer, but then... Dawn's volunteering at the Baker Center, which is for kids with physical disabilities and like muscular dystrophy and things like that. And Stacy's volunteering at the new Diabetes Center. I'm like, Stony Brook has these like state-of-the-art facilities for this really small town in Connecticut. <laughs> like there's no way there's a specialized diabetes center in Stony Brook. I'm just saying everybody's going to have to go to Stanford for that. So you're, you're kind of getting a little mini tour. And then Christie's is not about disability, but she's just volunteering at a very busy daycare center and like, hey, it's the 90s. Daycare centers are busy and these people and sort of a I thought there was like kind of a nice class message there of like these people, it's understaffed and they're overworked and they're still providing really good care and we should appreciate them more kind of message in the Christie chapter when she's helping out with the babies and going from room to room at the daycare center. So, yeah, I, I felt like I was being taught Um, in a very Anna Martin way for most of the book. But I think she did a pretty good job of it. So I did look into studies of um, friendship and pediatric cancer from from that time, from 1991. Um, So there was one study by Robert Knoll and colleagues that was published in 91 called Peer Relationships and Adjustment in Children with Cancer. Because I think in the 80s, we thought that basically it would be kind of potentially irreparable damage to kids to spend a long time in the hospital and to be away from peers. And this study actually showed that they do pretty well and that they um, adapt well, which is, you know, more in line with our more modern data that we know that kids are really resilient, right? And so as long as they have support and opportunity to maintain some of their friendships, they adapt well when they go back to school after treatment. In reading this study, it sort of seemed like they thought it was going to be worse outcomes for the kids with cancer than there were because of things like poor school attendance or feeling isolated, mm-hmm. but they're not really as at risk as they thought they were going to be, um, which I found heartening. I think there's a character in the California Diaries series who has cancer or her mom has cancer. 
I forget. Anyway, that just occurred to me as you were talking because that I think sounds there's right. a lot of that's that's neither here nor there. Carry on. Yeah. So this other study um, looked at from 1984. The title of it is by Chesler and Barberin and was published in the Journal of Social Issues. And the title is Difficulties of Providing Help in a Crisis: Relationships Between Parents of Children with Cancer and Their Friends which I thought was pretty interesting because there are a couple scenes where they look at Danielle's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Roberts, and we kind of see the stress they're under, everything they have to do to try to support Danielle's six-year-old brother while also having a sick kid and dealing with what is, you know, most parents' nightmare of your kid being in danger of, you know, staying really, really sick or, of course, at worst, dying, um, and how your friends with healthy children really don't know how to help. And so this was a qualitative study um, and where they interviewed the parents as well as some of their close friends and informal helpers and really looked into the impact on parents and sort of the aura. They talk about the aura of non-normality that makes people awkward around them and maybe don't then people don't offer sort of a full range of different helping behaviors. And the, they talked about the um Effective stigma on this, which I think stigma for cancer is a lot better now than it was in 1984. Um, treatments have evolved and, you know, pretty much everybody knows somebody that struggled with cancer and it's still an issue. So I thought she did a nice job representing that and the struggles that the um, Robert's parents were going under. Um, and then I also looked at a study uh, from 91 that looked at pediatric cancer patients' peer relationships after an oncology camp experience. So this was by Blue Blood and Langer and colleagues, Blue Blood Langer hyphen and colleagues, and the Journal of Psychosocial Oncology. And um, it was the first study I found published that actually showed, hey, if you put kids who've had these experiences together, that is helpful. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. surprise, surprise, they feel less alone. They have other kids that understand them, and that can actually help their relationships with kids who are not cancer patients right? because they have that belonging and that understanding and someone who can validate their experience in a stronger way. Of course, there's also stressors there, right? Because they have to worry about the health of their cancer friends. And some of them felt guilty if they were recovering well and their friend wasn't recovering well. So um, I think it, it th- this article from 91 leaves it as an open question of, you know, I think they end with, we think the benefits outweigh the risks, but that it is kind of hard because obviously then you're asking a younger kid, you know, if you've got an eight-year-old with cancer and you're introducing them to a bunch of other eight-year-olds with cancer, now they are worrying about a bunch of other eight-year-olds with cancer in addition to worrying about themselves. So it's just a hard needle to thread, I think, Mm -hmm. of providing that support and normalizing, universalizing, as we've talked about on the show before, but also making sure that the kid's not taking on too much. And I, I don't know. What did you guys think about how the other kids acted when Danielle returns to school? I mean, it seemed a bit exaggerated to me. I feel like kids would be a little bit more conscious about not wanting to make her feel bad or weird. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I But I, I can see why overdrawing it helps to make the point, right? Mm-hmm. The point of, about the importance of treating her like a person. She's still Danielle, right? There's this whole kind of thread where everyone's worrying about her but also wanting to kind of see her for herself at the same time and I think mm-hmm. I don't know if that's how kids would really act or not but it, it seemed a bit exaggerated to me mm-hmm. how about you Annie um that just made me think of in middle school there was a classmate who I believe like died of sickle cell anemia mm-hmm. do you remember this yep I do unfortunately I don't remember his name because I wasn't like friends we with weren't him. close to him we weren't yeah. close but 
I remember our teacher, I don't remember what class it was in, we had like a moment of silence. Mm-hmm. And I, I won't name the name of the person, but someone like started to laugh. And it wasn't mm-hmm. because she was laughing at him. I think she was just very uncomfortable yeah. and didn't know what totally. to do. Totally. So I do think it may depends on the person, the kid, you know, I assume. Yeah. But I can see how you're afraid of saying something wrong. Mm-hmm. And that would prevent you from saying anything at all as a kid. Yeah. Even as an adult, I have that impulse to be like, oh, uh, this person's parent passed away. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know what to say. So maybe I just won't say anything for now, you know? Totally. Yeah, I think it is a very normal human response to not know how to act in the face of mortality, you know, mm-hmm. or potential mortality, right? Leukemia is often quite treatable. And Danielle seems to be doing relatively well in general. But there's a big question mark at the end of this book, right? Not, no spoiler, but she's not, she's not doing great. She's back in the hospital. Um, and that's, that's a challenge. And it's especially a challenge when you're like nine, right? And so kids worry about, you know, could I get that? Like, you know, is it contagious? What, you know, is, is it safe to be around her? Also, what do I, but I think the biggest one is what you guys are both saying. Like, what do I say? How do I? How do I react? And I don't want to make it worse, but I also am uncomfortable. And then my only other criticism is that I thought that Danielle suffers a little, the characterization of Danielle. So this is based on a real girl that Anna Martin interacted with, whose name was Danielle. Um, and I think you guys are going to say a little bit more about that. And so it may just totally be based on her real personality. And then I, you know, then mm. just tell me to shut the fuck up. Right. Um, and I mean, I, she doesn't talk about her personality in the small note to the reader at the end yeah. of the Kindle version. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Dedication, she says, this book is for the real Danielle, whose courage, strength, and optimism make lots of wishes come true. Thank you, Danielle. So I just felt like she was a little parentified, uh, like kind of the perfect cancer patient, right? Like she's like, got, yeah, for like, sure. got little quips about it. She like reassures them right away. She comes in like super confident, um, which just seems a little bit unrealistic to me. Um, although also something about how, you know, we portray suffering women in the media that way a lot, right. Of bravery. Um, mm. you know, it makes us feel more, I mean, even like our, you know, media narrative around black women, right. We want to like talk about them being strong and brave instead of being, you know, terrible victims of our system. Right. And so I feel like it makes us feel more comfortable with the realities of cancer that like Danielle is optimistic and, and witty and on top of it, you know, mm-hmm. it was like just a, a power little... positive thinking. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that made me a little uncomfortable, but it may be exactly what the real Danielle was like. And I don't, who knows. Right. She doesn't, there's no, or there's not much kind of vulnerability in that way. Right. Like she's physically vulnerable and she, but she's like completely conquered the, intellectual emotional hurdle of not when she feels tired going to like a panic place or like a totally. place or something like that yeah right she's like yeah exactly she's she's emotionally mentally tip top mm-hmm. which i don't think is what i haven't had cancer but that doesn't seem true yeah well, that's me what about you emily you gonna bring us some sunny sunny optimism <laughs> um no no i was actually interested in kind of some criticisms of so it's based on Anna Martin writes in the note to the reader in the Kindle version that this book like you said was based on her interaction with a real young uh, cancer patient named Danielle who 
Anne and Martin donated funds to the Make-A-Wish Foundation that fulfilled one of Danielle's wishes. And she got, I think, got to know her in the process of that. And then she also writes about how she's had, through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, met a lot of kids whose wish was to meet their favorite author. And so the, the organization is kind of like near and dear to her. But there there is a lot of criticism of it as a charity, which I think is kind of interesting. And that we don't kind of how you drew or illustrated the landscape of all the different causes that the kids go to, you know, donate their time to, right? You Mm -hmm. were like, oh, there's these ones, you know, terminal illnesses. There are these like long-term disabilities. And then we have Christy helping out at a daycare center where that's like understaffed and underfunded, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that whole landscape of like what kids' various needs are in positions of precarity and like where does our time and money go to sort of prioritizing and what kinds of kids get prioritized is is the like landscape against which folks criticize the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So mm-hmm. that like that like it's a lot cheaper actually to like save the lives of some children who will die without food than it is to grant a Make-A-Wish Foundation mm-hmm. wish for a kid that's just a singular moment and doesn't do anything about the remainder of their medical bills has no no bearing on their quality of life, at, you know, post wish being granted and pre death in some cases. And so the criticism of it is is quite interesting. But I wanted to kind of walk you guys through some data that I found because I think there was a new study in 2019 that talked about whether having a wish granted has any bearing on what comes after or not. Interesting. Yeah. So so one of the most famous criticisms of the Make-A-Wish Foundation was written in 2013 by Peter Singer. Do you guys know who he is? Yes. He's like a really famous bioethicist who's at Princeton. And he wrote in 1975, he wrote this book called um, Animal Liberation, where he argued that Basically, that animals can suffer, so it's morally wrong to inflict extraordinary suffering on them. So he was like a really early proponent of animal rights, of of you know eliminating large scale industrial farming and like redoing our whole food systems. He's like a prominent kind of uh, ethicist in you know environmental theory and all these kinds of things. And he wrote a twenty a twenty thirteen essay critiquing the Make-A-Wish Foundation kind of on the grounds that I was talking about before, but the way that he got at it was really interesting. So he writes this essay after the Bat Kid Make-A-Wish thing. Do you guys remember that one? I mean, yes, I've heard of Bat Kid. Do you remember that one as me? It was in San Francisco. I, I remember the phrase Bat Kid, but I don't remember. My brain is not great this month, so I don't so remember like anything about it. 20,000 people in in San Francisco like participated in the changing of San Francisco into Gotham, so this little five-year-old oh, kid could right. could be bat bat kid for a day yes yeah didn't he like meet the mayor and stuff and he yeah like, yeah okay. yeah and so singer writes an essay kind of in response to that i think do you want to guess how much the bat kid stunt cost in 2013 and and help I me no out idea here. i'm assuming all those people volunteered their time but if he's doing things like riding around in a Batmobile and like seeing actual famous people, there's going to be security detail. There's going to be closing roads, potentially stopping bar trains. I have no idea how to estimate this. And you're better with money. I don't know. Like at least a hundred thousand dollars. It seems $105,000. Wow. Good job, man. (laughs) Yeah. That's a really good guess. Yeah. So in, in 2013, Ooh. the cost, the average cost of realizing the wish of a child with a life-threatening illness was 7,500. In 2019, the average wish wish costs $10,130. Mm-hmm. 
So singer. I feel like meeting Anna juxtaposes. Martin is quite a bargain. I'm just saying. Like <laughs> well, I think like some kids like to go tickets. visit her in New York and yeah. like, you know, on an airplane that maybe they sure. get put up in a hotel. I don't know. Yeah. So singer juxtaposes that cost with the cost for how many kids lives you could save from malaria. So like in 2013, he says that sum, that $7,500 sum, if donated to the Against Malaria Foundation, um, it could save the lives of at least two or three children. And that's a conservative estimate. In this 2019 piece, the Malaria Consortium can save the life of a child under five for $2,000. So that $10,000 sum that is now the average cost of a wish could save five kids from, you know, under under five. And so this question is like, Singer asked the question, why do so many people, given that we probably think it's ethically more important to save children's lives than to like grant the wishes of children who like that wish has no bearing on whether or not they're going to live. Why do people donate so much money to make a wish foundation was kind of what he was asking. And his argument was sort of that we have a hard time like connecting to the suffering of people elsewhere. And he cites some interesting studies. So in one People who'd earned money for participating in an experiment were given the opportunity to donate some of it to save the children. And one group was told things like food shortages in Malawi are affecting more than 3 million children. And then the second group was shown a photo of a seven-year-old African mm-hmm. girl uh, told what her name was and said her life will be changed forever, um, you know, changed for better as a result of your gift. And the second group gave s- substantially more money than, this than is the classic first. classic social psychology yeah. stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, But I do think it's interesting, too, that people think in the United States that, like, they already do enough through their taxes to help poor people abroad. Like, Americans think we spend too much money on foreign aid. But, like, if you ask them how much should be spent, they suggest a figure that's way more than what the U.S. actually gives. Interesting. Yeah, which is super interesting. The median answer to the question, what percentage of the federal budget is spent on foreign aid, was 28%, which is wrong. Do you yeah, want to how know much how it? much like percent four? it is? I, was, I would think less than that. I would think like, like less one? than 1%. It's yeah, yeah. One, yeah, 1%. Yeah. I was hoping it was four, but I was yeah. sure it was not. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's just interesting. And so then Singer was kind of like, we need to figure out a way to be more ethically invested in folks whose lives can be saved. And like that is a kind of a better place for our money to put be put. So his his um, criticism of Make-A-Wish was kind of on those ethical grounds. And it it was one of the first like high profile criticisms of the foundation. I think yeah. he wrote a, the the op-ed, he posted it in the Washington Post or something like that. But I also found another 2018 piece that was written by a former intern there where they argued that kind of on different grounds that like the money would be better spent elsewhere, that like the kind of corporate structure of the foundation like led to this sort of cold like interaction between these patients and like the the like wish delivery and that like you know they have, you have to go through a lot of bureaucratic nonsense and like it's this totally temporary respite but like has you know has nothing to offer in terms of like quality of life dignity and like all of these kinds of things um and in this piece they cite some data which is that a, a little bit surprising in 2018 Make-A-Wish's national chapter had a total revenue of more... Oh, this is from 2017. $120 million in 2017, coming from individual contributions, corporate donations, foundation grants, and planned gifts and chapter fees. Jesus, that's a lot. A new wish was granted every 34 minutes. And then the national chapter 
Uh, oh, and then in combination with the 62 lo- local chapters in the U.S., so I guess there's local and national ones, the Make-A-Wish Foundation generated a total revenue of over $360 million in, in 2018, which I think is interesting just as a data point. Um, so then all of that uh, up against this study, this new study about whether or not it does have any effect. So a study in the journal Pediatric Research compared 496 patients at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, who got their wishes granted to 496 control patients with similar ages, gender, diseases, and found that the patients who got their wishes granted went to the emergency room less and were less likely to be readmitted to the hospital outside of planned readmissions. And then in a number of cases, this reduction in hospital admissions and emergency room visits resulted in a cost savings of like $10,000, which is the cost of an average wish. That's kind of incredible. Isn't that interesting? I did did not think you were going to end there. I thought this was just going to be a whole Emily screed of shitting on the Make-A-Wish Foundation. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I am really sympathetic to Peter Singer's critique that, like, it is ethically a better use of my money Mm -hmm. to, like, save a life Mm -hmm. that can be saved than to, you know, donate some money to... Um, a kid who is going to have this one wish fulfilled and then, you know, may or may not have a nice life yeah. after that. Right. But I think it is interesting. I'm surprised to know that there are like concrete effects on the well-being of the kids who mm-hmm. are recipients yeah. of that. And I think that at least it, I, I think that helps with the question of like whether or not it's a worthwhile charity at all. Right. Like yeah. the question over where my, is my money best spent is different than whether this organization like ought to even exist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, I have like a, a broader, I really struggle with this like central singarian, like where, where is your ethical money? And, and I think ethical time best spent, right? Because there are, there are so many charities and so many things. And to thinking back to like, you know, when I was a DJ on, like college radio and we would do our drive or like when you know NPR does their funds drive like I think NPR serves an important purpose is my money better spent there or with save the children who I also donate to like clearly save the children except that I'm also invested in like free press and democracy and like I also think that that's important and I think it's it gets really dicey I just struggle with this a lot. I think about like you're you're saying those numbers. I was, you know, I work with suicidal youth. I was thinking about like what two hundred million dollars would do for a program like mine and how yeah. many more kids we could work with and like literal mm-hmm. lives saved. Mm-hmm. Um, are they being saved from malaria? No, but you know, mental illness is real. But like there's just so many things. And I it gets into like a little bit of a good place conundrum, right? Of like yeah. how if you're trying to you know, I often feel like cheaty where you're like trying to be the most ethical possible and then you just get stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like I mean, a really I, hard question. I should say that like I am sympathetic to his argument, but like that it's not something that I would really like agonize over, you know, like yeah. I, I, I think I think he's right that like I, I think thinking about why we're more likely to donate to the Make-A-Wish than say the children is really interesting and you know i know you're like it's classic social psychology but like i think too it's a bit like helps us collectively grapple with the thing we don't want to like in the way you were talking about how it makes sense that the kids don't know how to act around her and how she takes on this kind of like other you know extra humanly like strength and that like that's how Mm -hmm. we are that's the only way we're able to grapple with like 
the nonsensicalness of this thing that like upsets all of our sensibilities, right? And that mm-hmm. like the Make a Wish Foundation makes people feel good about in in that mm-hmm. way, right? Like mm-hmm. it's an easier way to confront this like thing that we ha- don't have tools for confronting. And so I think in that sense, it makes sense that more people that people donate more to Make a Wish than to save the children. And that like we could think about what are ways to collectively value starving children elsewhere that mm-hmm. would generate the same sense of um, responsibility as like the sight of a poor cancer kid, you know, a kid who's about to die, who's five, like wearing a bat kid costume through the city of San Francisco. Right. Like, anyway. yeah, I feel like that pretty much goes for all of the world's biggest problems. I mean, like I think about climate change and it's like, we know it's an issue and everyone's talking about it yet. No one really does anything that big to do. Like, it's like for us, it's like, yeah, I can recycle my can. That's easy. Or, you know, whatever. But like the bigger picture is like you feel so paralyzed. Like you just need these very like in your face things you can do. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's like I mean, we talked about this a little bit when I was talking about feminist theories of philanthropy when the kids uh, when the girls like organize that drive to help the kids on the reservation. You remember mm-hmm. that? Mm-hmm. Um, but like. This person who worked, you know, this former intern at Make-A-Wish ultimately argues that, like, in part, the the thing that sucks the most about childhood, you know, potentially terminal illness is that, like, we don't have a good enough infrastructure and, like, medical system to give these kids, like, a dignified life mm-hmm. and to, like, try to address that through a, like, corporate structure, you know, like, mm-hmm. capitalist capitalism, capitalism, machine, yeah. like, doesn't really get at that. And it's, like... Okay, we can like philanthropy can get, you know, money is important <laughs> to, to solving problems, but like if we're not addressing the structural causes of some of these like some of these things, we're only ever just going to be putting a band-aid on, you know, cancer. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, and you is a good idea that you said that I should not go last. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. welcome listeners and help us out. Yeah. So I have some things to say (laughs) about Make-A-Wish also, but more in the realms of pop culture. Well, first, I thought it was interesting that the origins of Make-A-Wish started um, when a seven-year-old boy in 1980, who was terminally ill, he wanted to spend the day as a policeman in Arizona. (laughs) So they basically made it happen for him. And they like, you know, gave him like a uniform and like made him an honorary police officer and they put him in a police car or whatever. And so basically, it's like people who worked on that kind of that was inspiration to form Make-A-Wish. Um, so it was very like it wasn't like it didn't come from like a corporate structure or like a business mind. It really did come from like this one boy. So that's very nice. I feel. Yeah. I um, mean, a cab, but sure. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I knew someone was going to go there. I was like, I'm waiting for it. Go ahead. Go ahead. I thought I'd give Emily a break. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but but that's very, like, I like that the community aspect, like he could have yes. wanted to be a firefighter or yeah, a they, zookeeper. Like it's mm-hmm. a cute community thing of like, yeah. let's make this thing happen. And also very cheap. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so another interesting fact is in 1996, they stopped granting wishes involving hunting, fishing, or firearms. LOL. They did before that? <laughs> yeah. Um, and what's That's incredible. So it actually, in response, three new organizations were formed. <laughs> Shut up. And they're called... America. <laughs> yeah. Okay. They're called Hunt of a Lifetime. 
You're making this up. No, I'm not. <laughs> I like of a lifetime. Catch a dream and life hunts. So hunt of a lifetime and catch a dream both have websites. Life hunts. I could not find anything, so maybe that is isn't around anymore. But hunt of this a lifetime. Haunt my nightmares. <laughs> I forget which one, but I think it was hunt of a lifetime. There was a boy who was 19 who wanted to go on some like hunting trip, but he was too old to. Uh, qualify for make a wish so his aunt made it happen or something and that and like her nephew inspired her to do this organized hunt of a lifetime so yeah i thought that was very i was like no this can't be real but it's it's real that i mean we've had a lot of very american things on this podcast but that might be the most american thing we've ever (laughs) i know right bananas okay and then just to shout out some pop culture references of make a wish it's like south park family guy key and pill Fault in Our Stars. It's like really like it, it, it comes up in cop- culture. It's in a the lot. fabric. It's in the fabric. Like Make a Wish is just like almost a description or example we use now. So what's interesting, th- I found this very funny. So The Onion did this parody video of Make a Wish. Oh my God. And it's like, I watched it. It, it basically looks like a very uh, generic morning, local, like a local morning show type of thing mm-hmm. like a segment it looks very real and it's all about how <laughs> the make-a-wish foundation became bankrupted after a child wished for infinite wishes <laughs> <laughs> and the, the video segment looks so realistic that people were confused and were like is this real like, because it like it even shows like a kid in a hospital bed who has no hair, and like him, I love the onions so much. Right, it's such a small dumb right. joke. Take yeah, so good. So okay, like we'll in put the a link to that, yeah right? in the video segment, it like quickly scrolls past like all his all his demands basically. So I wrote them down. Okay, so this is what bankrupted Make a Wish. Okay, nine <laughs> trips to Walt Disney World. Four tons. I love that that's the first one. Yeah. Four tons of assorted candy. One pirate. Tons? Yeah. <laughs> one pirate ship. One ball pit installed in bedroom. Real life. Wait, hold on. Ball pit? Like a. Like a. No, like a. What size pirate ship? I think he <laughs> made like life. a real, a real pirate ship. Like. Like big. in the ocean? In the yeah, ocean. Okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a real life F-14 Tomcat. One jumbo-sized water balloon catapult, face carved oh on Mount God. Rushmore to be completed by 2031. <laughs> <laughs> Three trips to outer space. Uh, one handicapped accessible treehouse. Five personal robot servants. Um, all Batmobiles ever. 138 <laughs> hot dog lunches with Johnny Damon, a baseball player. Two jetpacks. What? 55 wall-mounted medieval weapons, nightly fireworks displays, and cameos in all future Spider-Man movies. <laughs> oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, I so, love the onions so much. I know, and apparently some people thought it was real and like Snopes had to debunk it. Oh my god, that's so, even better. I know, it's pretty hilarious. Um... There was another instance of like this, there's like the skit show in Australia. I forget what it's called, but they did a skit also about Make-A-Wish and it was all about like 
you're going to die anyway. Like, why do you need this? And it really offended people, I guess. And they got the show mm-hmm. got in trouble and was like suspended for a while. Oops. Oops. Apparently making fun of dying children is not something oh, society go well? really goes. Yeah. Mad. Not funny. Well, at least there are some guardrails. I'm not, I'm not sure. What, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's good to know. And then the second thing I kind of looked into uh, is the word cowabunga, which appears in the book. And it was in the last book, too, right? Wasn't uh, or the, the book before one of the little the Corman kids was saying it. The yeah. Baby, right. Right. Yeah. So I was like, oh, like, you know, Cal- like, what do you guys think of when you hear the word cowabunga? Bart Simpson and Michelangelo from the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, correct. And- I mean, those are the two biggest like pop culture things. So when I looked into it, the origins actually come from the Howdy Doody show. And what? yeah, so I I didn't I I mean I know Howdy Doody just from like seeing clips of it. I never watched it or anything like that. But for our listeners, it was like a puppet who kind of looked oh, like. I was just about to ask if I was supposed to know what that is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it was a very popular like kids show in the 1950s. Um, and Howdy oh, Doody was yeah, like no. a cowboy like marionette. Okay. I guess, kind of, right? Yeah, sort of. I, I think one of the inspirations for Woody in Toy Story. Yes. Oh, for sure, yeah. for sure. That kind of character, yeah. Right. So there were also a lot of, like, Native American characters, because how do you mm. do, you know? So there yeah. was a character named Chief Thunderhead, and the writer and founder of the show said he just kind of made up words for them to say. Mm. Right, because why actually... Do right. research to represent exactly, the exactly savage people you're portraying. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of the words that the Native Americans said were started with kala. So, like oh. it would be like kala gupa. Yeah, like kala gupa, and they did spell it kawa. It was later mm. shifted to cowa as we know it mm-hmm. now. But uh, there was he had to think of a word when the chief got angry. So he just wanted something that sounded like with hard consonants. So he came up with Kalabunga. Mm. Uh, so uh. that's where it came from. And then this is the part where I couldn't really find anything. But between there, like surf culture picked it up. I was going to say, I also associate it with like Frankie Avalon. Yeah. Uh, or like, so, like surf movies. Yeah. Yeah. So in the 50s and 60s, surfers kind of adopted the word like Kalabunga, right? Like when they rode a wave, a good wave or whatever. Mm-hmm. It also appeared... Uh, in a 1965 Peanuts cartoon where Snoopy is surfing. And I apparently <laughs> also Cookie Monster said it in Sesame Street, too. Hmm. So it makes sense that Michelangelo, who was like the surfer turtle, and mm-hmm. Bart said it. The party he, dude. Yeah, the party <laughs> dude. And Bart said it when he was skateboarding. So there is mm-hmm. like a very strong surf connection there. But I'm not sure how it got from Howdy Doody to surf culture. There are some places just said that surfers just watched it in the 50s. Yeah, I was going like to say, they're all kids. bloomers, right? And right. so they just, they brought back a thing from Yeah, their exactly. They just liked the way it. it sounded. Yeah. And the creator of the Howdy Doody show, like, had no idea that people had even picked up on this phrase until huh. he was, like, at Burger King. And it was, like, some sort of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, like, toy type of giveaway thing. And it was, like, it said Kawabunga, and he was like, what the? <laughs> so, 
So that's uh, so weird. I know, right? So weird. So weird. From that, it's, from that casual racism all the way up to the babysitters club. I know. It always starts in casual racism. I know. Well, or everything capitalism. does. Or yeah, capitalism. One of the two. Or both. Often it's both, right? Of, I mean, yes. you could argue it's both in this situation, right? They're making yeah. a lot of money off of how to do. Oh, that. like root beer barrels, both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just bring that back. <laughs> Uh, Also also in the book, it was confirmed that Frodo was named after Frodo in The Lord of the Rings. Yes. Yep. Um, I think that's... Oh, and Christy sings Rock Around the Clock to... (laughs) Yeah, like a lot. Yeah. And I was like... (laughs) Several times. Yeah. I was like, why Rock Around the Clock? Okay. That's weird. Um, Yeah, that's that's all I got. Was there any candy? There wasn't. There was no candy. Because they didn't really have BSC meetings. They had like no. informal meetings in the barn, but they weren't in Claude's room. Yeah. They were just a couple of them answering the fuck calls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, a few tallies. It's been a few books since we had, you know, other than Claudia's descriptors, since we had social social justice alarm bells. But um, two of the kids are being Indian warriors in this book and putting mm-hmm. war paint on their face. I think it's Becca and Charlotte, actually, um, on their faces on page 91. And so Danielle. That- Oh, and Danielle. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's concerning. It's the um, Barbie incident. Cancer makes you racist. So that was my one count for that. And then um, <laughs> Jesse doesn't. <laughs> Emily made a good face. Jesse doesn't do a lot of descriptors. We get two sophisticateds, one individual and one exotic. And that's pretty mm-hmm. much it mm-hmm. in the beginning. It's not surprising, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, she does make some clear parallels toward the end with, with you know, back to my one sentence summary of life unfair she is talking mm-hmm. with Charlotte and Becca about the fact that there are a lot of things that aren't aren't fair and aren't reasonable about life. And she draws parallels between chronic illness and racism mm-hmm. um, as well, which. Yeah, that's a good parallel. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys have for weirdest lines? I was just going to say I forgot to write them down because I was reading on the Kindle. I have one. Yep. But I don't, I don't think it goes well with the title of the book. I just realized <laughs> <Okay>. that. <laughs> okay. What is it? It's when Claudia is in response to Stacy's situation at the diabetes clinic. This is and mine too. She, yeah, she goes, beep, wrong, bad move. But yeah. then it's like you can't say Jesse's wish, beep, wrong, bad move. Like that's I sounds- strongly disagree. I, I think strongly disagree. that we should hundred percent do it. It's very, very title. on brand also. <laughs> It's super on brand. And like Emily just talked about all the reasons make a wish could be a bad move. Although now we know it actually helps with outcomes. So that's yeah. cool. Wrong uh, bad move. Yeah, I loved that. I also wrote that down. Yeah. So Stacy's trying to be the perfect role model for these kids with diabetes and like just act like the perfect patient. And that's Claudia's response. Beep, wrong, bad move. Yeah, with periods yeah, in between. Perfect. Yeah. I'm excited. That's a great title. I did have one other one that I wrote down. I agree that we should go with that one because that was my first. But I all I also really liked um, when Karen is spooking everybody at the art class where Claudia is volunteering. Mm-hmm. So, of course, Claudia is volunteering in art class. And Karen's making all the kids believe that her little jungle sculpture is alive mm-hmm. and the elephant is moving. And Claudia just says, it's a shame about your sculpture. I'm really sorry. <laughs> um, because she's leading to say that Karen can't possibly fire it and put it in the oven because it would be killing the ant, the elephant and the snake. Um, and it's just so dry and so Claudia. Like, I just yeah. love it. Man, Karen is good. really annoying, huh? I love it. <laughs> I love yeah. her and well, I love Claudia's response. You know, back to our listener yeah. letter from yeah. the top of the episode, right? Yeah, like, Julia's don't right. all the kids wish that, like, they had enough 
commitment to convince everyone that their yeah. sculpture was alive, right? Like and charisma. I mean, Karen's yeah. going to start a cult, let's be honest, but I feel like at least Claudia is keeping her in check in the meantime. Anne's not going to join that cult. No. <laughs> uh, what should we pizza toast to? <sighs> Got some heavy content today. Yeah. Should we <laughs> to Mr. Simon's long trip? <laughs> Great. I mean, without him, we would have not had this book. So. That's, That's so true. true. That's yeah. true. So where do we think they went? Well, you think they're retired? Um, That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Oh, she just volunteers? Yeah. For kids club? Because uh. volunteerism is the theme of this book. I mean, also. a right. six-week trip? Really long. It's a long time. Yeah, they're doing like a Eurail situation? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> or like a really long cruise. cruise somewhere? Yeah. Okay. Did they go to, maybe they went to like, they went to like the Great Wall of China. I feel like that's something that retired people want to okay. go see. Okay. Great. Right. Uh, pizza so toast to-, to Mr. Simon's trip to the Great Wall of China. Mr. <laughs> 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 so Simon's trip to the Great Wall of China. Yeah. That. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuckinstonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.